You know, when I was coming up, it was a dangerous world. But we knew exactly who the they were. And it was us versus them. And it was clear who them was. But today, we're not so sure who the they are, but we know they're there. Now, I'm not going to negotiate with myself. I'm a gut player. Always have been. And I'm just so bone tired of this Saddam. He's always misunderestimated me. And I don't want our soldiers invading that god-awful desert heat. We have got to get this war going before summer, Remy. For the record, sir, this is totally against the spirit of the UN resolution. We agreed with our allies to let the inspectors do their jobs. As Yogi Berra said, deja vu all over again. Did you know that George W. Bush choked on a pretzel? Did you know that George W. Bush believed God told him to invade Iraq? Did you know there never were weapons of mass destruction? Did you know that George Bush once said that uh, they misunderestimated him? Did you know it was a war for oil? Did you know that Al Gore won the popular vote? Welcome back to Michael and Us. I'm Will Sloan, here as always with... I'm Luke Savage. Hey, guys. For this episode, we watched a movie that I think has really been a long time coming for this podcast. It's Oliver Stone's W. Mm-hmm. Now, what is the correct... Like, on the poster, was it just W the letter, or was it actually W? Go. It was W the letter okay. followed by a period, but in mm-hmm. all of the marketing of the movie, I believe they refer to it as W. Okay. So, you know, I know it's like religious, religious. It's right. one of those tricky titles. <laughs> so we're going to get to this. It was great, by the way. Just another home run movie. I feel like someone attached a vacuum to my soul and just left it running for two and a half hours. I know that, like, it really is a running gag of the podcast that every every time we say this one was a really hard one, folks. But, man, this was a really hard one, It's folks. also a running gag where we say, like, Oh, you know how we always say it's bad, but this time it's bad. It's like the gag is now a meta gag. Yeah. But I, I don't I don't know how, like, we just have to be sincere about it. I swear, this one was fucking brutal. Yeah. We're going to get into it. But let's talk about uh, the hot, you know, political and current affairs items of the day. Well, what's, what's been going on? Well, I spend a lot of time just kind of feeling upset and angry and just full of full oh. of bad feeling these days Don't we all and it's because you know you go on twitter and you check uh, the evening news uh i don't watch the evening news but uh you, you check the evening news the hypothetically you, you pick up your local uh, newspaper from the uh, newspaper boy on the corner and you, you give yeah, them the, a, the little kids shouting extra extra and you give them three thruppence thruppence halfpenny and you give them a you give them a little dime and say that's for you son <laughs> buy yourself a sig scamp i say what day is it today <laughs> it's it's christmas day <laughs> But uh, it's it's really hard out there. I mean, you see these awful uh, stories, you know, you hear about, you know, immigrant families being torn apart. You hear about the rising death toll in Puerto Rico. Just one awful, awful thing after another. And like, it's hard not to despair. And you think, well, what is in my control? And if you're like me, sometimes you go on Twitter and you just like, pick a pointless fight with an unworthy target you know i do that occasionally and i never feel good about it but it's like some somebody's got to get punched so i'm just gonna punch someone weak and you know another area for you to, you to express yourself might be well the death toll in puerto rico is so like it's too much to bear but what i can think about is roseanne yeah yeah and i i would say that all of us have been thinking a lot about roseanne this week <laughs> have you followed this controversy 
You know, actually not that much. I've been exposed to it because I've been it, like even more online than usual the past uh, the past few weeks. But um, I've never seen the original Roseanne. I know mm -hmm. we've talked about doing uh, something about like doing an episode on it. Yeah, and I never really watched the original Roseanne either. And I, you know, I've learned a lot in these past couple of weeks during the Roseanne discourse that we've all been living in. I, yeah. I've learned how important it was for a lot of people, how important it was, you know, as a representation of a working class family, how important it was that it had queer characters on it. And it seems that people who found the show important are very hurt by the turn that mm. Roseanne has taken in her career. To, to me, you know, in a big way, the whole Trump era in the, you know, lead up to his actual election and, and post-election, it can be defined in a big way by these these cultural fights between liberals and conservatives where you know right right now it's kind of these air wars like what you know what gets to be on tv and it's ultimately just these multi-billion dollar conglomerates often that will air one thing that liberals don't like mm -hmm. and that will air one thing that conservatives don't like it's just different partisan cultural blocks kind of you know making these uh demands like fighting over what's gonna be on tv before that, it was, I mean, do you remember the, the whole sort of Breitbart serial controversy? That one was great. No, I missed that. Oh, man. So I think that was in November of 2016, something like that. Or I think it was Kellogg's or something pulled uh -huh. ads from Breitbart. Okay, yeah. Because I guess Kellogg's... There are perpetually new stories like this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Kellogg's being a sort of, you know, mega serial giant was like, you know, maybe we don't want to have our ads on a website that has, like, the black crime tag and stuff like that. And conservatives were outraged, right? They were like, this attack on freedom of speech, this serial Stalinism will not stand. So mm -hmm. there was days of conservatives, like tweeting photos of themselves with like a, a box of fucking rice krispies pouring them into their toilet that's the same thing and isn't then, it with like the starbucks coffee cups yeah, that they weren't christmasy enough exactly yeah. and then but then what what i loved about that is conservatives having kind of already owned themselves with like <laughs> you know look here's a photo of me clogging my toilet with rice krispies with the rice krispies the that i bought and paid for that's right now libs then retaliated by being like you know there were these great tweets where people were like you know, conservatives attack Kellogg's. Well, guess what? I just went out and bought all the Kellogg's on the oh, shelf yeah. at my local. And it's like, you're both buying the cereal. <laughs> like, do, you, do you remember when I, I, Ivanka Trump had that war of words with Nordstrom and then li liberals started buying Nordstrom clothes? And I believe, I believe it was Chelsea Handler who like took a photo of herself holding a bunch of Nordstrom shopping bags outside the White House and being like, you know, take that, Trump. Oh, man. Oh, and speaking of the Roseanne thing, a funny subplot in that was her saying that uh, it was like some drug she was taking. Oh, yeah. And yeah, then yeah. and then the drug company, some, you know, some savvy social media <laughs> intern was like, like for this massive French, like pharmaceutical giant, you <laughs> yeah. know, was that has like over 100,000 employees and is a multi-billion dollar company was like, you know, our drugs do not make anyone racist, you know, raffle or whatever. Yeah. And then all these people were like, uh, oh, big, big pharma, welcome to the resistance. <laughs>
The really funny part of the Roseanne thing has been the counter campaign from conservatives now to like, well, we got to get a liberal fired now. Oh, oh, because, let me... because it's like World War One, where we just keep <laughs> fighting over the same like muddy, muddy five acres of land. That's right. That's right. And Last Man Standing was like the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand, and then yeah, know, it yeah. just escalated from there. But but now, so now that the liberals have like taken over the muddy five acres of land <laughs> that was Roseanne, now conservatives. <laughs> want to get you know what they think is the left fired uh-huh. so bill maher now yeah i'm just gonna say know. i want to say to any conservatives listening as a leftist if you were to fire bill maher i mean he's like totally my guy as listeners to the show <laughs> will attest and i would be very very upset if if such a crucial left-wing voice were taken off the air it would be it would be disastrous and i would be owned by that I mean, I guess another kind of problem facing us that we can wrap our head around a little more easily is uh, Trump pardoning friend of the show Dinesh D'Souza. <laughs> and actually, we were we were talking about maybe doing a, a Dinesh D'Souza movie for this episode, but I don't know. Like certain certain moods strike you at certain times, and I don't think it was the day. Yeah. Speaking of which, um, and we we promise we will do that film at some point, but speaking of which, there was another film that I was really keen to do. I've sold Will successfully on the Star Wars episode, so that's We're going to do it. We're going to do it. It's happening. But a few weeks ago, I put out an appeal on Twitter because, you know, Michael and Us Nation has long been agitating for, you know, an episode centered on friend of the show, Howard Dean, you know, a, a guy who I feel like really you know, captures the, the Michael and us spirit, you know, more than, more than anyone. Well, um, my, but more than Michael Moore. I, in some ways, <laughs> you know, as you know, I'm a huge fan of Howard Dean and, uh, I endorsed uh, general Wesley Clark in the primary. <laughs> actually, I like Howard Dean because of his principled stance on keeping super delegates to, <laughs> to keep the unwashed masses away from the democratic party and its levers. Um, no, we wanted to watch this film. You know, I put out this appeal, like, is there a good film? You guys want a Howard Dean episode, what's a good film? And someone recommended this film called Dean and Me, a roadshow of an American primary or something. It was It's from 2008, Dean and Me. And, you know, yeah. when we searched it, uh, all the search results that we could find were like links to the Jerry Lewis book, Dean and Me. <laughs> um, we couldn't find like anything. We couldn't find anything on Amazon. The movie has a Wikipedia page. Yeah, which is crazy. And we actually really couldn't find any other it's documentary. Got, it's got an IMDb page that's the director's only credit and it has like a one star rating. But if anyone can help us get this movie, please. Oh, and another thing is, you know, we were trying to torrent it. We were trying to find like, uh, you know, Well, you were, I don't believe. And- I, I support the artists <laughs> and and we were we were any means necessary to find this film to publicize it to give it the attention it deserves and there were a lot of you know there were a lot of like this has been removed for copyright violations so let me tell you the powers that be <laughs> don't want you to see this film just like they pulled out all the stops to prevent governor howard dean from becoming president and while they may have succeeded in that endeavor they're not going to stop Howard Dean from getting his due on Michael and us in the year of our Lord, 2018. So if anybody has this film, if, if you've got a bootleg copy of it, if, if you you're got, the director of if, the film, yeah, if, you you're, know. if you're Howard Dean, yeah. um, just please get it to us. Uh, you can email us, you can tweet at us, you can DM us, whatever, get us uh, Dean and me. 
before we move on to the movie, I do want to just linger on the Dinesh D'Souza thing for a bit longer. Yeah, I just kind of want to marinate it. Like, you know, when you go to a spa and they've got like that, that tub of like shit and dirt and grime and stuff that you get in. Like there's, there's I, a, there's a whole, as with anything Dinesh, like there's a whole city to sack. When I first saw the tweet where Trump announced that he was <laughs> pardoning Dinesh and that, and that his government had treated him very unfairly time almost slowed down <laughs> and i actually felt a little bit faint when i saw it yeah because i i actually thought that there's nothing this man could do to shock me anymore but when this happens it's amazing next level it's funny too because like as we established on you know a previous episode of the show where we dealt with dinesh d'souza I think we've done two Dinesh D'Souza episodes, right? We've only done one. Oh, we were going to do a second one, but then Hillary lost. Oh, of course. And somehow doing Hillary's America no longer seemed very funny anymore. <laughs> one of the funniest things about Dinesh, right, in his, like, so-called, you know, prison sentence or whatever was, I'm pretty sure he was just put under a kind of, like, a house arrest thing where he had to report, like, on the weekend. It was a country club, It was basically. nothing. And, like, you know... I haven't seen his movie, um, Hillary's America, but the trailer for it shows him... Him in prison. Yeah, like, like, like being surrounded by yeah, hardened... Having to, you know, eat rats to survive. <laughs> yeah. It's like something out of Dickens. But, I mean, you've really got to respect a president on some level who's, like, this shameless. Oh, my Because, God. you know, the, the way people talk about the presidency, it is, like, quasi-religious. Mm-hmm. There's all that talk about how... The office of the presidency transcends the man. Mm. And even the mere institution of presidential pardons is like a quasi-religious yeah. Yeah, institution. It's, it's, it's like a secularized version of you're being washed of your sins, my son. Yeah, you know? and the fact that this guy gets in there and craven opportunism, giving favors to his friends. You know, after he somebody asked him, you know, if he would do a pardon for anyone else and he th- and he said oh you know i might do it for rod blagojevich i might do it for martha stewart right two people who have been involved in the apprentice franchise right yeah no i mean it and it's amazing because trump and dinesh d'souza both represent kind of just lowest common denominator like bargain basement tv and i mean the trump mm-hmm. presidency really represents cannibalization mm-hmm. of the executive branch with you know just like lowest common denominator mass culture so i think on some level you know you've just got to hand it to a guy who like has so little respect for like these these institutions that really don't deserve respect he treats them with the respect they deserve you know what what makes me think there's a historical analog to what's going on now which one of the currents leading up to the french revolution was the fact that there was this kind of burgeoning industry of tabloids and newspapers and you know amidst the kind of increasingly liberalized culture you know this is the era of Voltaire and Jean-Jacques Rousseau, one of the things that happened was kind of the desacralization of the monarchy because mm. Louis the Fifteenth, um, I think that's the correct Louis, you know, he was always kind of having orgies and stuff. He was a bit of a playboy and the French people were reading about this, mm. right? And unlike Louis the Fourteenth, who'd done so much work to kind of craft this great image as the Sun King and who understood the semiotics of power and kind of their <laughs> value in a real way, Louis XV, you know, was kind of lazy. He didn't take the job all that seriously. So there was this erosion of the kind of religious aura that had surrounded the monarchy. And, um, you know, we all know what happened in uh, 1789 and then again in uh, 1792. So I'm just going to leave it there. All right. Well, I think we've put off this movie long enough. Oh, God. Uh, yeah, we're trying to avoid... There, I mean, we're like 20 minutes in and we're still talking about, you know, it's this movie was... I know we said it already, but it was, 
It was so brutal. To, to give you an idea what our experience of watching it was like, like, you know it's bad when Will asks, how much is left of the movie? The movie's got to be over soon, right? And when it happened this time, I said, because I'm, I'm a pessimist, you know, pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the will. So I said, 40 minutes. And Will said, I think it's like, you know, 20, 25. So I cautiously go over and check there's over an hour left in the movie. And we didn't feel like the movie had anywhere to go from there. It's like, what are they even going to put? We asked during the scene where, like, they're in the war room and they're about to invade Iraq. Mm-hmm. So I thought, you know, right. this, this has got to be... This is Act 3. Yeah. Like, yeah. Mr. President, what place do you think you'll have in history? In history? In history, we'll all be dead. <laughs> Has he been imbibing something I don't know about? Yeah, devil. Devil in a white hat. Enhanced interrogation techniques utilize fear scenarios. You mean like pulling out their toenails? What an ass whipping? Oh, try it, old man. Go ahead, take us away. I'll never get out of Poppy's shadow. Who ever remembers son of the president anyway? John Quincy Adams. That was like 300 years ago, wasn't it? So, okay, let's talk about god-awful movie. Let's for, lay for, it out. I just want to say for the record that this is the third time I've seen this film. Unbelievable. Um, and I, you weren't prepared. No, I wasn't prepared because you can't honestly expect me to remember, like, what order these random scenes come in. <laughs> I saw this movie when it came out, and I saw this movie a year ago uh, for an appearance on the late lamented These Boys Are Good Boys podcast. Oh, I was also on that podcast, by the way. Yeah, rest in power. From that hazy memory, I thought, you know, this is absolutely perfect material for us. And in a way, it sort of is. Mm. Uh, but It is perfect material, but I, the thing is, there's no correlation between material being perfect for Michael and us and it being pleasant to watch. In fact, I think there's often kind of a direct kind of... Yeah, I forgot how little beauty is in this film. (laughs) Yeah, at one point when we were watching, Will just said in very existential tones, show me something beautiful. It's one scene after another of just two people in a room. I I swear there are a half dozen scenes where some very significant event occurs on television and oh, pe- people just look at each other in this room and they high five each everything, other. Everything <laughs> happens. Cur- this movie represents all current events are just experienced by people, including the actors who've actually shaped them and are involved in them. They just watch everything on CNN. Yeah. Every, like ever, the world just unfolds on CNN all the time. Like the most significant events of all have no stakes. Like, okay, that scene, the scene that made me laugh out loud is when you've just seen George H.W. Bush, you know, he's he's won the Gulf War and he's like, Cheney Powell, this is the most significant, you know, moment of my presidency. This is the greatest day of my presidency. And then it just cuts to like, you know, 1992 or whatever. And then he's just crying in front of the TV. He's crying in front of the TV. H.W. Bush is watching himself lose on the TV. And the announcer on the TV says something like, though the Gulf War had just (laughs) happened, uh, his promise of no new taxes combined with a slumping economy and a third party challenge by Ross Perot doomed the president. (laughs) What I love about that scene is it's like, it, it makes it seem like that, you know, that's they're hearing about the like the whole Bush clan is hearing the delegate count for the first time as if they haven't been watching the results come in all night, as if they haven't known for weeks that they're probably going to lose. We see multiple like high power elections where they're just like <laughs> watching it at their home. Yeah. On CNN. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is not how a presidential candidate. No. Opera- OK, we're getting ahead of ourselves, though. Yeah. A little background about this movie. This movie was cobbled together 
in the last year, in fact, the last six months of George W. Bush's presidency, because Oliver Stone, the director of the film... Yeah, really the, the greatest chronicler of, of American life I on... Mean, on- I think our listeners really need no introduction to Hugo Chavez's friend, Oliver Stone. <laughs> he had a project that was canceled because of the 2008 writer's strike. And so he sort of threw together this film. And I believe it started shooting May of 2008 and it came out in October. And, you know, that sounds incredible until you see the film. I mean, there's not a lot visually going on in oh. this. It's like the, there's not a lot of scope. It feels like a, like a sci-fi channel original it feels like one of those documentaries on, yeah, sci-fi or History Channel where, you know that style of documentary where everything's kind of a dramatic reenactment? Mm-hmm. It has the look of that. Or like um, those kind of crime shows where they like recreate oh, yeah. the crime. It looks yeah. like that. A lot of people sitting in rooms. Co- you know, cosplaying as kind of minor characters from 2003. It sort of like goes through a checklist of most of the things, you, you know, you remember from the Bush era with a couple of glaring omissions. J- just like so leadenly dropped in. Like they just have to browbeat you with like, eh, eh, remember this? It's like if Time Magazine wrote fan fiction about the Bush era. So you get, there's a needless scene where you see that... It has nothing to do with the plot of the movie where he chokes on the pretzel. Yeah. That's just in there. There's a whole there's a whole scene where Josh Brolin as George W. Bush just chokes on the pretzel and mm-hmm. kind of falls over. There's a scene of him, you know, being initiated into Skull and Bones with old ass Josh Brolin playing an 18 year old. And yeah. a better film could have shown us how this scene would have like shaped his personality. Yeah. How this moment would have affected him. But this doesn't do it. It's just a checklist. It's just like, oh, yeah, remember how he like he went to Yale and he Mm. was part of like a frat. And I would say this movie definitely tells and doesn't show. There are many scenes like there's an absolutely unbelievable scene where W and his father, uh, played by James Cromwell, the great James Cromwell, the great James, giving one of the better performances in the film as George H.W. Bush. They're, you know, on a baseball field because it's 1991 and this is the <laughs> this is the era when W is running a major league baseball team and they have this conversation that touches on you know maybe 5 years worth of events where he's like, oh, well, it seems you're doing a really good job running this baseball team. Huh. Well, looks like you're about to go to war. Yep, this seems like the war that's going to define my <laughs> presidency. Say, you know, it looks like your brother is going to run for governor of Florida. I mean, I'm really not yeah. overstating the case at all. <laughs> yeah, so the film is basically people reacting to current events unfolding on the screen, random clips of George Bush watching sports because, you know, we, I don't know why. It's Because he's a dumb fucking yokel, I, I you guess, know? I guess so, because, yeah, right. Because, uh, and yeah, kind of scenes of like stuff in the Situation Room, the Oval Office. I mean, that scene in the Situation Room where they're debating the merits of invading Iraq and it's portrayed like Colin Powell is really against it and Cheney is kind of this... This hog. I mean, that scene, it felt like it lasted for 40 minutes. This is really why I, I think we watch this movie more than anything. This movie is an aggregation of all the sort of center-left, liberal, yeah. received wisdom about the Bush administration. Yeah. It's like every every little nudge-nudge moment is like something that there would have been a riff on like jibjab.com in 2006 or something. And, you know, if you were kind of like a mainstream Democrat, these are the things that you would have thought of about these people. So, you know, is Colin Powell this principled man who kind of got browbeaten into yeah. 
uh, selling the war at the UN. You know, you're going to see that. That's um, right. Donald Rumsfeld at one point actually says, I don't do nuance. <laughs> uh, you um, know, there's, he, there's the whole bit about, uh, well, Governor Bush, you know, people just want someone they can sit down and have a beer with. Yeah. George W. Bush is sold as, you know, this kind of uh, dumb, rube, hick Texan. Uh-huh. But who's also, like, sympathetic. Like, he is just a guy, and, like, he's the protagonist of the movie. Laura, come here. I'd like for you to meet George Bush Jr. Laura Welch. Call me anything but Jr. What do you do, Laura? Oh, uh, I read. I, I smoke. Uh-huh. I admire. You admire what? People who write, who read. I'm a librarian. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. No, actually, I'm reading something right now. Yeah, very engaging book. Oh, what is it? Barry Goldwater's Conscience of a Conservative. Uh-oh, it's <laughs> jam. No, don't tell me. <laughs> well, I don't. worked on Gene McCarthy's campaign. Voted for LBJ. Oh, no. No. <laughs> well, looks like we're hitting it off like grease hits a skillet, huh? Well, I don't think politics should define a human being. Mm. There's more to people than just how they vote. Yeah, I like that. I like that. You're open-minded. Yeah, much more so than me, I'd have to say. The thesis of the movie, if indeed this this yeah, there, disparate no, there, connect, no, collection of scenes has a thesis. There's no politics, but it does have a thesis. The th- Yeah, the thesis is that George W. Bush is the way he is, and his presidency turned out the way it turned out, and Iraq happened because he had daddy issues. Yeah. Essentially, Jeb was kind of the aspirational brother. He never quite felt like he measured up, and, uh, you know, his dad was always giving him opportunities and stuff, and he wasn't good at the oil company, he wasn't good at the investment bank, whatever, um... And his dad, you know, got the war wrong. He didn't. The, the problem with the George H. W. Bush presidency is that he didn't go the whole hog and take it all the way to Baghdad. He didn't, he didn't take out uh, Saddam, you know, enough. So George W. Uh, Bush, you know, succeeds where his dad uh, fails and finally mm. kind of resolves the uh, the very Freudian crisis that's at the center of the movie by proving that he has a bigger dick than his dad. In case this thesis were not apparent enough, the movie ends with an actual dream sequence. It doesn't quite end with a dream sequence, Oh, it it climaxes with a dream sequence with George W. confronting his father in the Oval (laughs) Office and they almost have a fist fight and Pappy is saying, like, you've ruined the Bush family name (laughs) and W. is like, get out of my head! You know, I I think a dream... He wakes up in a cold sweat. I think a dream sequence in a movie like this is really the last resort of a scoundrel. Actually, it ends, spoiler, uh, it ends with another dream sequence where... W is on a baseball oh, so it, field. Okay, so it begins on a baseball field. Mm-hmm. The scene that you talked about with all the sort of current affairs trivia shoved in where, you know, W and HW are talking, that's on the baseball field. And then right. the film ends on a baseball field. And how does it end? It ends with him, you know, there's been kind of this persistent motif of him trying to catch a ball. Yeah. On the baseball field, like a long ball. Now, what is the ball symbolic of? Uh, could it be Iraq? Could it be the presidency? Could it be his own soul. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And then, so at the, at the end, you know, we've seen him kind of catch the ball before, but this time he looks up and there's just bright lights 
and the ball just like doesn't come back and his hand is just and outstretched. He, yeah, and I think you're just forced to conclude that, you know, he was just a, a nice, good, well-meaning man who just got in over his head and got in with the wrong crowd, you I, know, I, Dick I, Cheney. I and... like to think that Zizek would do, you know, a good like Lacanian analysis of this film <laughs> where he would say like, uh, the, the baseball field persistent motif in the film represents the paternal super ego or something like that because the baseball field appears at kind of the three core moments of the film and uh the the baseball field represents his internalized patriarchal authority that governs his <laughs> that governs his actions yeah that's my reading of the movie there's a i guess a more simplistic reading of the movie which is like the movie is not actually about george bush it's about a very sick man played by brolin and the whole movie is just a fever dream. And he's actually a failed athlete mm-hmm. who uh, always wanted to be a successful baseball player and has kind of externalized that and created this this grand narrative because he's just finished reading Decision Points by George W. Bush. I like that movie yeah. a lot better. <laughs> when this movie came out, it was such a, a whiff. It came out, you know, within a month of the 2008 election. And I think people were pretty ready to move on there's nothing there's nothing here it is a remarkably apolitical film and isn't it? there's no politics this film at all he makes a cursory reference i don't know in one of the scenes that's set in like the 70s mm-hmm. in the scene where he meets laura bush mm-hmm. um he says oh i'm reading a book by barry Goldwater. conscience of a conservative yeah yeah you're looking at this movie and thinking why would oliver stone this kind of left-wing firebrand no, he is though i no, mean he's not what well, he, he's not your kind of left-wing he's but... a he's a liberal filmmaker okay a, li- a liberal filmmaker you'd really call him a firebrand there was a time when he was it's easy to forget because it was so long ago and it was before we were conscious but he was an extremely controversial filmmaker like H- howard dean's the only firebrand i recognize <laughs> i'm sorry there was a string of movies you know platoon yeah. wall street um wall street's good Wall Street's good, yeah. uh, but but you know JFK, Natural Born Killers. There was a string of movies where I'm not saying all these were good movies, but he just seemed plugged into the zeitgeist somehow. Right. And you know now he's uh, out there making documentaries about uh, what was his Castro thing? and uh, what, no, what's his latest thing? Well, he just made a a, bi- a biopic of Edward Snowden, right? Uh, a sympathetic one, which we we might watch that at some. We point, probably I guess. we probably should. But you know you may think like why would a uh, I'll, I'll be generous and say liberal filmmaker uh, like Oliver Stone make a movie like this. He, he clearly doesn't regard George W. Bush as a successful president. So his motivation seems to have been, well, can we get into his head and explain why he wasn't successful? Turns out the answer was no. <laughs> He's trying to find like every possible thing to explain why George W. Bush is the way he is, except politics. Yeah. You know, he goes... Yeah, it's, it's religion. There's the scene where he he's mm. talking to the priest and he's saying, I had this weight mm. on me. And the priest gives him some moralizing sanctimonious lecture mm. about, you know, Jesus or something. There, and then, yeah, know. there's all the father stuff. There's the scene where he's running for, I can't remember if it's uh, like a state legislature or something. He, he loses, yeah, he loses a congressional seat to a democrat who like out texans him yeah and there's a memorable line where he says i'll never be out christianed and out texaned again it almost like goes out of its way to discount or suggest that it really doesn't matter whether or not he believed any of this it's a remarkably apolitical film for something that features so many kind of memorable events i mean yeah we see all this stock footage 
And as you said, you know, the kind of Zelig style, like, you know, edited the State of the Unions with like Na- actual Nancy Pelosi and John McCain and stuff. And um, friend of the show, Hillary Clinton sitting next to friend of the show, Joe Lieberman. <laughs> All that was very, was very tacky. But I mean, just the fact that there's like stock footage in this movie of these very significant events. And yet it's just scenery. Like there's no yeah. kind of content to any of it. You see the anti-war demonstrators and stuff, but they're just props. Well, it was kind of towards the end when Oliver Stone's, let's say, left-wing side starts to peek through a little bit. There's a a bizarre scene, you know, the mission accomplished scene, where we see it framed as a cable news show called Spinball. Yeah. Like, the movie all of a sudden becomes very, like, kind of kooky. Yeah, it's very campy, isn't it? (laughs) The movie never really settles on a consistent tone. There are a lot of scenes where it's almost like a 80s made-for-TV yeah. movie, and then there are scenes where it seems to be gesturing towards comedy, like the... Well, there's a lot of, like, sort of music that seems it's supposed to be an ironic counterpoint or something. Yeah, there's a scene where, like, the Robin Hood theme plays yeah. while, while he's on his ranch, and, you know, there's the pretzel scene, mm-hmm. and, and then there's the scene, really the centerpiece scene in the movie where Dick Cheney excellently played i have to say by by richard dreyfus outlines how the invasion of iraq is going to give them access to all of the middle east oil Mm -hmm. and they're going to build a new empire so that's you know that's a different kind of scene because it's more you know it's more like agitprop yeah i mean you're forgetting um you know we've talked about a few performances my favorite performance which is colin hanks as david frum oh yeah very charismatic uh my dad fun fact He's not actually credited as being David from in the credits. He's credited as like advisor, advisor. or something. But then, yeah, it's like it's a, it's such a fucking stupid scene. Like right after it opens on the, you know, this is very kind of abstract baseball field mm-hmm. thing. Um, it cuts to like them in the in the Oval Office and um, and they're like, hmm, it's the could be the the access of access of bad, the access of whatever, and oh, then access of evil. Yeah, and they're all like, whoa, that's good. Mm-hmm. So I wonder, I wonder if David Frum is like, I wonder if he's like weighed in on that. He's tried to distance himself. He's like, he's like, oh, so many people go into coming up with like a speech or whatever. But you know, you made a good point while we were watching it that the common line on George W. Bush, even among liberals at the time was, you know, this is a guy who you would want to have a beer with. Mm-hmm. Even Democrats would concede like, well, sure, of course you want to have a beer with George W. Bush, but we really need a serious guy like John Kerry in office. It shouldn't be about who you want to have a beer with. Mm-hmm. And a better counter argument would have been who wants to have a beer with George W. Bush, not yeah. me. Yeah, totally. And this movie totally buys into the idea that this is a guy you want to have a yeah, beer with. Yeah, he's affable and stuff. And the thing is, like, he's not even, like, affable. The no. The film thinks he is. The movie totally buys into this idea that he's, you know, this good old boy, yeah. this uh, southern hick who just kind of got a little in over his head as opposed to being a rich fuck. Yeah, a disgraced member of a disgraced clan of sociopathic mutants who did mm. in- irrelevant irreparable damage to the world and have gallons of blood on their hands. Mm-hmm. Bush's daddy and granddaddy been in politics his whole privileged life. They don't know what people suffering is about. George Bush here yeah, hasn't earned the living here, George. I stand on my own two feet, make my own living. Now, hold on here. When it comes to the integrity of my father, what mess are you talking about, Mr. Hanson? Washington is the way it is today because of all the Yale and Harvard fellas running the place. I went to Texas Tech. You went to Yale. I went to UT Law. You went to Harvard. And I spent half my life here in Midland. I, I know the problems of the people here. Yeah, maybe at the country club. 
But you're still an outsider as far as we're concerned. But enough about the Bushes. We are in the home stretch of an election here in Ontario. Gotta say, it's pretty exciting, folks. Yeah, you're feeling pretty good, aren't you? Yeah, I mean, it's, um, I, I'm finding myself quite invested in it. For those who don't know, which is, I assume, most of our American listeners, Will and I live in Canada's largest province, Ontario, and it's in the midst of a provincial election. And the governing liberals who've been in charge since 2003 are... I mean, really solidly in third place, looked like they could be headed for a historic wipeout. And, you know, the conservatives led by uh, Doug Ford, elder brother of the late Rob Ford, you know, looked set. They had kind of a 20, 25 point lead in the polls like eight or 12 weeks ago. And the Social Democratic NDP, uh, for whom I ran four years ago, is neck and neck with the PCs and possibly ahead. So I don't want to jump the gun on anything or jinx it, but I will say that if the NDP were to form a government in Ontario, it would probably represent one of the most significant electoral victories for social democracy in North American history. Well, I, I want to stop Doug Ford, so I'll be voting strategically for the Liberals. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's the only, it's really the only possible choice. Now, you know, I actually, after much persuading, I did convince Will to cast a vote for the NDP, despite his staunch law and order and pro-military <laughs> beliefs. I, you know, I think we just have to stop the sex ed program. <laughs> <laughs> the Doug Ford conservatives have really run about as bad a campaign as they could run. Mm-hmm. It is a bit of a problem every time the conservatives run. People want to get the liberals out. And our province, I think, has a bit of a conservative streak. Oh, absolutely. But when it actually comes time for the conservatives to put their ideas out there, they're just not very popular. It's interesting. Like, like for example, they still haven't put out a really fully, co- no, fully they costed they don't, platform. No, they don't have a real platform. No. Because anytime they do, it's unpopular because you have to cut a bunch of services. Right. You I have mean, to so, lay people off. So, so to provide some context here for people, I mean, it's... The conservatives are running on the most generic sort of small p populist like center right platform. It's just this empty, vacuous messaging about like government's too big. It's overburdened. So we're going to put more, more you know money back in your pockets. And so it's like we're going to cut taxes for the middle class. We're going to have a rebate on your hydro. It's all these things, all these things that if you actually investigate them, you know, like they've been selling this middle class tax cut, um, which is a cut to the second income tax bracket in Ontario. And if you actually do the math, for the people who make $43,000 a year or whatever, they're going to get $18 you know, more a year mm-hmm. on their tax bill. And of course, when you cut a lower tax bracket, because of how progressive taxation works, you know, you're also cutting it for the millionaires. The millionaires get the maximum amount from the tax cut. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, Doug Ford has this stupid thing about how they're going to have a rebate for minimum wage workers mm. so that they don't pay any income tax. But what he's also going to do is cancel the scheduled increase of the minimum wage from 14 to $15 a year. Mm. So again, if you do the math, he's actually running on taking about $1,100 a year out mm. of minimum wage workers' pockets. Like, There's no substitute for creating programs that serve everybody and actually make life better and more affordable. This is a problem for them, the fact that their ideas aren't popular. It's also a problem that they have a candidate who, you know, is prone to trip anytime he talks. So they've had to keep him away from the camera as much as possible. So it's like he hasn't even just been a big enough, like, physical presence in the campaign. And 
the conservatives for the last, you know, three or four election cycles just haven't quite known how to balance the social conservative side of their party. You know, that's an that's yeah. I mean, that's an important dimension is that the conservatives here do have a base among kind of evangelicals and yeah, like law and order conservatives. And those people are very important as kind of their activists and stuff. Mm -hmm. But they have proven very toxic in the past, especially among kind of urban voters, the conservatives need to win. And so people like Doug now have to be very coy about exactly how socially conservative the party is. Yeah. And Ontario is interesting because I mean, it was ruled by the conservatives, but a very different style of conservatism from like the 1940s up until the mid 1980s. Mm. And then you have this kind of brief interlude where you had the only NDP government followed by another conservative government, which was the most right wing government, I think, ever elected in Canada, mm. followed by the liberals in 2003 to the present, who basically just resumed the mantle that the old PCs had had. So it's not an exaggeration to say that Ontario's politics have always been kind of, they've always been centered around elite brokerage, centrism, big tent coalition, consensus politics. And um, what really interests me about this election is that, you know, it's much more an election that's pitting two populisms against one another. And I think there will be lessons here if a moderate social democratic program amidst a cost of living crisis like the one we're having in Ontario, if that can defeat the kind of populism Doug Ford represents, I mean, that's a lesson that, you know, a lot of people need to learn. And it's a very, uh, it's a very inspiring one. I mean, I guess some of us have learned it already, but, you know. Well, like I say, I'm a law and order conservative. (laughs) (laughs) Now watch this drive. He's the president in residence. He's kind of in charge. He's got the whole country saying, that's my bush. Life is hard. That's the price of fame. When you're president, everyone knows your name. Hey, what's that thing? It's my bush. I can't believe he's actually in the White House. That's our man. 